I pray in your name. Amen. You may be seated. It is a quieter Sunday, and uh, it is a joyful day to come and gather. Uh, my wife and I were just talking about how this, the uh, calendar affects us. Uh, everybody was focusing on December 24th, and, uh, and then December 25th, and nobody thinks about no uh, December 26th. Uh, but here we are on the Lord's Day, and I was glad when they said unto me, let's go to the house of the Lord to worship. And uh, if you will bring up the word cloud now, I want to be able to remind you that you're in a Bible-believing church. Uh, the word cloud actually focuses our attention on the fact that we are a gospel-driven. Uh, we are also, hopefully, a friendly place. When you showed up, uh, when you show up at this church, uh, we don't want you to be seen as an enemy. We don't want you to be cast away. Uh, for as the scripture talks about, we want to go out into the highways and byways. We want to go all around coastal Lewis, uh, our coastal Sussex as well, uh, to be able to bring people in so that they might meet with Jesus. Uh, but worship is such a key focus. We want you to come and meet with God with us. Uh, today it's kind of interesting when Sean was not able to join us, he drove to Kentucky. And just recently, I think Christian was telling me that, uh, that his uh, mission trip that was scheduled to go to Brazil is now being redirected back to Kentucky. So it seems like something's going on in Kentucky. Uh, but I'm excited that the word of God is still being proclaimed to people uh, wherever the Bible is opened. And I'm grateful, I'm, re I'm happy for people being able to travel these days because who knows what the future is going to hold uh, if there is more and more fear generated. Uh, it could be that, that some of the things that we have not even imagined could happen where we couldn't be put on an airplane or we couldn't uh, make a, a boat trip or we couldn't even get in our cars to go to another location. But as you come together today, we have the privilege to be here today. It is January, excuse me, it is December 26th, the last day of the year. And as the bulletin that I mentioned before is a, is, is a it's like the, uh, the second parentheses uh, that goes on the, uh, in the parentheses. You start with one and you finish with one. As we begin today's service, it's the Kiss the Sun in 21. Uh, this is where we started uh, many, many, many months ago, 12 months ago, and we're going to finish bringing right back. So our text today is from Psalm chapter 2, and uh, we'll be looking specifically at verses 10 through 12. And if you have your Bibles open, I am going to be looking at quite a few of the verses that are surrounding it. Chapter 2, let us reverently attend to the public reading of God's inerrant, infallible, inspired word as it was given in the original. Psalm 2, verses 10 through 12. Now therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those that put their trust in him. The key verse there in verse 12, kiss the son, lest he be angry, lest the son be angry. Now that's not talking about the S-U-N, that's the S-O-N. And this is written more than a thousand years before Jesus actually cried his little cry in Bethlehem, uh, which we celebrated on Christmas. About a thousand years before this, we already knew that God the Son was going to come. And David was looking forward to one of David's sons who would end up being the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But when we look at that particular text, uh, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David says, kiss the Son. Don't run away from him. Don't hide, don't stay away, but run to him. 
And this is an interesting text that I've been challenging us throughout this whole year to be able to, uh, to do this very particular text. Now, I'm going to give you the little bit of context now. So if you follow along, uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to page 568. Uh, I want to read through the Psalms that surround this. Uh, we're going to look at not only Psalm 2, but I want you to know Psalm 1 and Psalm 3 and 4. Now, you might think that that's a lot. But it almost all fits on, on just the, the one main page of, of uh, the scripture in front of me. And plus, many of you are familiar with these. So if you'll follow along with me, let's look at the word of God in Psalm 1. This is the book of Psalms. It's like the hymn book of the Old Testament. It has all these sayings or songs that they sang, especially as they were making their way to Jerusalem to worship. In Psalm 1... It begins, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Verse 3 says, he will be like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf will not wither, and in all that he does, he prospers. Then there's a shift. The wicked are not so but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in that judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord, that is Yahweh, knows the way of righteousness. He knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. You've heard those words before from Psalm 1, and you can see the poetry that is written in that dialogue. In Psalm 2, we find that it continues because he ended with the wicked will perish, and then he picks up with the wicked. Look in Psalm 2. Why do these nations rage? Why do the peoples of the earth plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed one, saying, verse 3, let us burst their bonds asunder. Let us cast away the cords from us. But the one who sits in the heavens, he laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury when he says, As for me, I have my king. I've set my king on Zion's holy hill. I will declare, I will tell of the decree. The Lord has said unto me that thou art my son or you are my son. Today I have begotten you. I have put you here for a purpose. Verse 8. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth for your possession. For you, the Son, will break them with a rod of iron. For you, the Son, will dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings of this earth, be wise. Be warned, O rulers. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. And that is why you should kiss the Son, lest he be angry with you. And you perish in the way. For his wrath is easily or quickly kindled. But blessed are those who take refuge in him. Now you can see the context. Why do you want to run to the sun? Now in chapters 3 and 4 of Psalms, these are testimonies that have been given. Oh Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my own soul that there is, no, there is no hope or salvation for him in God. Salah. But you, O Yahweh, 
You are a shield about me, my glory, and you lift up my head. When I cried aloud to the Lord, he answered me from his holy hill of Zion, I, so I could lay down and sleep. And when I awoke, the Lord had sustained me, and I will not now be afraid of thousands of people who have set themselves against me all about. Verse 7, arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek and you break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. Your blessing be on your people. Salah. What a testimony. But the next one kind of gives in, and I'm adding this too on this Be Still Sunday because you can see it in verse 4. David continues by saying this psalm. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Oh, men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Selah. But know that the Lord, that is Yahweh, has set apart the godly for himself. And the Lord, Yahweh, hears us when we call to him. So be angry, but don't sin. Ponder in your own hearts and on your own beds and be silent. Be still. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust only in the Lord. There are many who may say, who will show us some good? Lift up, your light of, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they that have their grain and their wine abounding. So in peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. Lord, I pray that you'll bless the reading of the word and especially the preaching of the word that we, it may be an effectual means of growth in grace. May we encounter the living and true God today and may we respond with a similar testimony as we come to commune at the Lord's table. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. The idea of kissing the sun in 21 is something that if you've been paying attention, and I'm not sure everybody does, but if you read the bulletin, one of the first things you'll see on the front page, kiss the sun in 21 with the reference. Hey, you've heard it come from this preacher's lips quite a bit, uh, usually every Sunday. Do you care? Do you know what it means? Oh, isn't that just nice? It rhymes. As we finish up this year and have echoed it again and again, I want to drive you back to why the scripture text gives it to us. I want you to benefit from it, even more than probably you did when we were first introduced to it at the beginning of the year. I want to revisit this text with what I call the helicopter view. I want you to see Psalm 212 in light of all four of the Psalms. And I believe that each Psalm is like a sentence that when you put it together makes a paragraph, a complete thought. Each, each one of these Psalms is like a stanza. And when you combine them, it makes like a hymn that, that really communicates the message that brings the joy to the world that we sang about last week. I want you to be able to see it as fingers on the same hand. That when they're working together, they can grab, they can hold on, and they can make sense. Kiss the sun. That phrase has a beautiful affirmation. 
Kiss the Sun has a potent admonition. It also has a blatant distinction connected to it, as well as a personal demonstration, which we've just read from Psalm 3 and 4. I want to be able to go through these. That beautiful admonition, or the beautiful affirmation, actually is a warming confirmation of hope. We can kiss the sun. That potent admonition is actually a chilling command. It says, hey, you better pay attention. The third aspect of this is the blatant distinction. Hey, you can find out really, really quick whose side are you on. Have you kissed the sun or not? And the fourth one is the application for those who have. It is a personal demonstration. I call it a transparent testimony. You get to look into their hearts. What does it mean to actually run to the sun, to embrace him, to love Jesus with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? You're different. You're different from the world who can't. So that's the three or the four main points today. Uh, and as we tackle this as preparing to the Lord's table, I want to begin with that beautiful affirmation. This scripture reveals something that, that, that in the Old Testament, some people may not have ever figured out. Because when you were in the Old Testament era, how many people could enter into the Holy of Holies? That was a question I'm asking. If you were back in those days and you were living among one of the tribes and you went to church there on the Temple Mount, uh, you know, where Solomon's Temple had been built, would you have been able to go in and see for yourself the Ark of the Covenant? The place of the mercy seat? I hear a little bit of rumblings. It's just not fair. You didn't have the privilege. I mean, we should have had some kind of other lives matter. We, the, most people couldn't even go in. That veil that was put in front of that curtain, or the curtain, really kept us out. And ironically, it kept us out for our own good. Because you cannot stand in the presence of a holy God, a thrice holy God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You and I as sinners could never enter into his presence. When David tells us to kiss the sun, this is a concept that is almost foreign. And yet for us, we almost take it easy because even as we come to church on a Be Still Sunday, the challenge for all of you is actually to close your mouths. It's to have that awe of God's presence here. It's not that we have the most beautiful building or the fanciest columns or the highest ceilings or the biggest organ or whatever it is that you might associate with awe. But when you come into God's presence... David tells people in Psalm 2 that they ought to run to Jesus. They ought to run to the Son of God. They ought not just to keep their distance in fear. Now, it's kind of interesting as it, as it explains. It is an embrace of sorts. It has some physical linkage. It is a real manifestation because you either kiss the Son or you don't. And it shows something of volition because you either go forward or you don't. It makes me think of, uh, for those of you that like Disney... And uh, the uh, Little Mermaid, you know, have that beautiful song where, where uh, she's going to, she's underneath the, uh, the, that one tree with the weeping willow. And, and little Sebastian, the crab, says, are you going to kiss the girl? La, 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 my, oh, my, look like the boy too shy, ain't going to kiss the girl. Many people are too shy to run to kiss Jesus. You don't know how to do it. 
Or you might be more like my dad when he was not thinking very clearly when at the 60th anniversary. Uh, we were standing in the church that he got married in 60 years earlier. And dad's biggest concern was, is he going to make a, a mess of things because he wasn't thinking clearly. And I told him, I said, as long as you kiss the right girl. Now, this was significant because my mom is a twin. And she was the maid of honor. So it was kind of interesting when dad was there, I'm like steering him in the right direction. Although he had a down pat after, after uh, 60 years and eight kids. Um, anyway, the, <laughs> the emphasis there about kissing the sun, this is an affirmation that should encourage all of us. That God is not in some ivory tower castle that, that is unreachable. David is telling us that there is hope for us. Uh, and then if you look at verse 11, the one that comes right before it, uh, I have it right in front of me here in, in chapter 2, verse 11. He says, serve the Lord with, glad, or with fear and rejoice with trembling. So there's these two ideas that when you're able to come and kiss God, it's because you can serve him and you can also rejoice with him. You can do his bidding and you can enjoy his company. You can sing the Christmas carols like we did this past week. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. We don't have to say, oh no, he's come. We can say, let all heaven and nature sing. He has come. John, uh, uh, when, when David ends up telling us to kiss the sun, he is telling us that there is going to be an intimacy that matches up even with the Great Commission. And lo, I am with you Always, not sometimes, to be able to be that close to embrace the sun. Throughout the year, I've been calling for you to do this, to ponder who the son of God is and what he stands for as the prodigal son in chapter 15 of Luke. If you remember, that guy knew who the father was. But he was out there living his life like, like nothing mattered. There was no accountability. He had all kinds of friends as long as he had money. And you remember what happened? In Luke 15, Luke tells us uh, from Jesus' story that the, that the boy that had run away from his dad and his older brother had squandered his money. His life was now a waste. And as he's there taking on a lowly, lowly job of feeding pigs, he started to think that the pig's life was better than his. And even thought the pig's meal was better than his. Can you imagine? How low do you got to go? But it was in the midst of that that he realizes the very same concept from Psalm 2. I could go back to my dad's house. I would like to embrace my dad. I would like to, I may not be worthy. He's recognizing his sinful condition and his wasted life. But he said, I'd rather be there. I'd rather be a doorkeeper at my dad's house than to stay where I am in shame and reproach. It's really interesting just like the lady who, who uh, washed Jesus' feet with her hair. You know about her? How many of you know her name? Okay. There's, a, there's, a, there's not a whole lot about it. But we know she had tears of joy to be in Jesus' presence. And although she didn't do kissing on his face, she was embracing him. And she didn't care what others thought about. Or maybe you're more like Zacchaeus. And you finally this year went out on a limb just to get a little closer. Now Zacchaeus didn't get to give Jesus a kiss from that sycamore tree in Jericho. But boy, he got to get eye contact with the Lord. And that's when Jesus said, Zacchaeus, salvation's come to your house. Come down from that tree. I will come and dine with you today. We're going to have the Lord's table before us. 
And are you like that? To come into the presence of God, to be able to kiss him. It is quite interesting. Have you come to kiss the Christ even once? Or is he just a distant stranger? Has, has kissing the son become something of a habit to you? Do you go to him first? At least do you go to him ever? In intimate prayer to express your love, to confess your shortcomings, to thank him for being with you, to see you through it all. You see, I tell you, that is a beautiful affirmation. And I could stop just with that. That there is hope that we as sinners could enter into the presence of the true God and not be rejected or erased or banished. Now, secondly, I told you that this is a potent admonition. It's a chilling command because when you realize in verse 10 that this is not just written to generic people. It was written to the leaders of this world. Now, if I were to ask you to list the top 10 leaders that you know about, I imagine some of you would put maybe the president, maybe somebody in Congress. You might even put somebody from Dover. You might even put Charlie's name there because somebody that is an elected official. There's a lot of people that are going to say, who are leaders? Well, it's interesting in Psalm 2 when you understand it. He says, uh, um, why do the nations rage? And, and what he's saying about the nations is the people that are leading these nations. And he goes on to explain it. And the people that are there are plotting vanity. They're plotting alternatives to what God has already revealed. They're doing what seems right in their own eyes. He says the kings of the earth in particular. Uh, he says the rulers also in verse 2. It's kind of like synonymous. Uh, he says these people that are in positions of making authority on telling us what we can and cannot do. Telling us where we have to go and where we can't go. Telling us how much we have to pay and how little we might have to pay. Or, uh, all those people that make these decisions, these leaders, they take counsel together. But the sad thing is, is in verse 3, he says, or at the end of verse 2, he says, their counseling is not to be able to figure out what God's will is. It's to figure out what their agenda will be, minus God. They're not seeking to do God's will. And that's why they're raging, because everything that is already, what they, what they were born into, what they found themselves living in, is a, is a world that God created. And yet they're not happy in this world that God created. They don't want to be accountable to a God. And therefore they conspire and they think through these things together. And they, they, uh, they, they say, let us break the bonds. Uh, let us cast away their cords. It's almost like you can have, uh, I, I've always pictured this in my mind of like a great balloon, like the Hindenburg. Before it was taking off, it was filled with helium or something. And in order to keep it from just floating away, they had ropes and stuff tied down. Now, it was elevated, of course, uh, but, but it, it was controlled by the strings. <clears throat> and if you could imagine for just a moment what it was like to cut all those strings loose. Now, if there was no engine on that balloon, if the, 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 uh, uh, basically what would happen is that balloon would float wherever the wind would take it. They want to cut the cords because they think that freedom from those cords will give them the joy of life that they're looking for. They want to dash in pieces anything, any of the chains that used to hold them back. They want to be loosened from, more immor from God's mora morality. It's very, very interesting when you think about it from that perspective. The people of this earth, they're, they're moaning. They rage, they plot, they conspire, they intentionally target God's agenda with an alternative. They pursue their freedom. And the sad thing is the admonishment comes because God is aware of it. And that's why he says, kiss the son. 
You leaders of this world. You people who make decisions. Now, normally I say that the leaders of the nations are the ones that we're thinking about. But do you guys ever make any decisions? Do you ever get to freedom to make a decision? Or, or is, are you always obedient to what everybody else tells you what to do? Now, I tried to work with my four kids when they were little, and I would tell them a lot of things to do. But when they were young, they ended up having to be taught that way. As they got older, 1 Corinthians 13 says, they put away some of this childish thing, and they became men, or they became women. Okay, now, when you think about this for a moment, I'm trying to challenge all of us that if we make decisions... We need to take the same counsel as the leaders of the nations do. Uh, we, we know that God is in the heavens. He is aware of it. Even though he's far away, he sees every decision we make. But he laughs at it. Because, as was said before, the best plans of men, they can be changed very easily by God. Psalm 2 says that God will hold them in derision. He can stir them up. He can put it on pause. He can do more than Joe Manchin did to the Build Back Better in the Senate. God can stir things up. He can turn it upside down. He can change everything. Uh, and and, his, and they can, he can terrify them in his fury because God is, when he is no longer complacent, when he no longer has grace, when, when Romans 6.23, that verse that you all know, for the wages of sin is death. Now, that idea that death hasn't come upon all sinners yet, has it? Are you breathing? Okay, if you're breathing, then, then God has had mercy because he didn't give you what you deserve because if you sin, you should surely die. And so the fact that he's held back bringing what you deserve, that is mercy. And so when you look at this, uh, God is basically saying, since we all deserve judgment, we all deserve alienation, we deserve this wrath from God upon our sin, it's a terrible thing. It's terrifying. When he lets it go. When God finally gives you what you deserve. You've heard people march in the streets saying that they want justice. They want racial justice or social justice or they want economic justice. Whatever other justice. If you put an adjective in front of justice, you're not wanting justice. When God brings justice, you get what you deserve. And it's a scary thing, as Jonathan Edwards put it in The, in the Awakening... It's a scary thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. His wrath will begin to flow. His mercy will end. And no more holding back. And I simply put it this way. Here it comes. I'll never forget standing on the coast of Pensacola when we had a Category 3 storm coming our way. We were in the cone. We were right in the middle of the cone. And I knew that our house and our church were going to be hit by it. And, and I took all the kids over there. We opened up the door of the minivan and we watched the dark clouds starting to come and the waves start crashing in. And we were thinking, oh, how cool. Until the middle of the night at 2 o'clock when it was howling like a freight train coming through. Then it's not so cool. Then I keep praying, Lord, move it on. And then as I've realized in maturity, Lord, shrink it. Because if you just move it on, somebody else is going to get hit with it. You see, the wrath of God being unfurled, when he looks at these kings of the earth and he says, kiss the sun, it's almost like pleading with him, don't run away from God. Run to him. Don't cast away the cords from him. It's to your own detriment and your own destruction. Whew. Wow. Romans 1, 
Because the wrath of God is going to be poured out against all unrighteousness. You want to look at the list in the New Testament era? It's not that much different from the Old Testament era, and it's not that much different from today. The things that God has been gracious to let us live through and let us, you know, people worship the creature more than the creator. They acknowledge things that are seen and not the things that are unseen. They don't have faith to be able to trust the one who made them. They want to be able to determine that they have life and death at their own decision. Supreme Court's even working on those things. When you start to realize all of these things, I want to tell you, it is an admonition to be careful. Brothers and sisters, kiss the sun in every decision you make. Now, the last two points that I want to make is kiss the sun includes a person, excuse me, the blatant distinction. And this is where Psalm 1, 2, 3, and 4 come in handy, and you already know it. In Psalm, uh, if, if you, it's a blatant distinction. In chapter 1, you're going to find that the, there is a distinction, a labeling and also a blessing that's different. The people who do kiss the sun, they're labeled as godly. And the people who don't kiss the sun, well, they're labeled as the ungodly. Godly and ungodly. Now, in the new translation or the ESV, you get, the, you get basically the godly and you get the wicked. Okay, which camp do you want to be in? Anybody listening today from this voice? Uh, which camp would you desire to be in? Well, well there's some folks that would prefer to be in the, in the wicked category. Because then they're free to do whatever they want to do. Nobody's going to hold them accountable. Nobody's going to stop them. Wrong. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish from the way. Now let me show you the, the distinction between the godly and the ungodly. In Psalm 1, it says, interesting, there's a couple of things. The godly are the blessed... Okay, the godly are the ones who delight in God's word. You know Psalm uh, chapter 1. It says, blessed is the one who doesn't listen to these things, but listens to the law of the Lord. That would mean, let's help me translate that for today in modern application. Those who read God's word. Those who hear it in their ears. You know, it's kind of a neat thing. I remember when, when, the, when, when the Bible was on cassette. Do you know how many cassettes you had to buy in order to get the Bible on cassette? And then it moved to the Bible on, on, on CD. And that was really cool when it was the Bible on CD. And, uh, but now it's the Bible as an app. You can even get it with a different translation very easily. You can even get it with somebody with a cool uh, accent uh, from, from Europe or somebody that's got a, a nice soft tone from America. Male or female, you can get it, whatever you want. And the word of God can be heard in your own ears. You can even put it at 1.5 speed if you're quick. When you think about this, the Bible says in Psalm 1 that the people who are godly love the word of God. They listen to the voice of the word of God. And, and in Psalm 2, the same people that are blessed, uh, if you look at the end of chapter 2, it says, blessed are all those who put their trust in him. So it's not only the ones who love the word of God, but the ones who are resting in Christ. Now, how do I know it's Christ? Because if you look at Psalm 2, the one who they're supposed to be trusting is the one who was put on the holy hill of Zion. That is the area there of Mount Calvary. It's the place that was going to be a thousand years from that moment. Instead of focusing on David's throne, it was going to be focused on the place where Abraham offered up Isaac. It was there that the true son of God, the worthy one, would replace these substitutes that didn't work, Isaac and all of the lambs before that. John the baptizer got it right. Behold, Jesus, the Lamb of God, 
who would take away the sins of the world. That is, that is why the blessing of the godly are for those who delight in God's word and for those who also are trusting in him in all the decisions they make. And that is really a beautiful thing. Now, the ungodly are not so. They are like the chaff which the wind drives away. So when I think about it, instead of God's word, the ungodly are listening to man's word. It's kind of like they tuned into TV before it even came on. They would listen to the live little, you know, we always picture these boxed heads where they tell us all that we're supposed to know. Uh, or, or now it's with the apps, your phone can tell you everything you need to know. Uh, back, back in the day, if you go to Psalm 1, is this, blessed is the person who is not like the ungodly, who, who uh, stand in the path of sinners, who sit down in the seat of the scorners. Okay, these are the people that make fun of Christianity. These are the people that don't see the truth of Scripture. These are the people that actually have invented evolutionary thoughts. They tell you how to fix this world minus God. Because they actually tell you they fix this world by eliminating God. You can see that in Romans 1. That's why they imagine the vain things. Uh, now, when you realize this, these people, instead of listening to God's word, they listen to the scorners, the ones who don't have the truth. Instead of a biblical foundation, they are just blowing in the wind. They are like chaff. It doesn't have a foundation. They don't, they're not connected to the word of God. And instead of the peace of God that passes earthly understanding, they perish in the way. You know the word perish. It comes from Psalm 1. It's at the end. It says, the way of the ungodly shall perish. And if you look at verse, uh, verses uh, 10 and 11 and 12 of chapter 2, after he says, be wise and be instructed. Serve the Lord. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son. You don't want him to be angry because otherwise you will also perish like the wicked. We all know John 3, 16. If God so loved the world that he did, he gave his only son, the begotten one, that if you're resting in what he did, you will not perish. It's really beautiful how all these things are weaved together, Old Testament and New Testament. And that is why I want to encourage you here is in this personal, blatant distinction that you can't be godly and ungodly at the same time. You can go in the Old Testament for other illustrations like water can't be bitter and sweet at the same time, nor can you be one of God's children and not be. Now, the last point as I speed through this is that the, uh, the kiss the sun phrase includes a personal demonstration that you can have an intimacy with God. As we finish this year, it's not just the intellectual, it's not just stimulating. I just want you to think for a moment. Has this been an easy year? I've seen tears in the office, counseling with folks. There's been some real hard times. Sometimes it's the actual diagnosis of being sick. Sometimes it's the breakdown of the family where you can't even get along anymore. Sometimes it's the, it's the sadness, especially those you have, have lived for a few years and you've seen uh, the decline of freedom in our country. You've seen the rise of some different thinking, godless thinking. And you, you watch these things and it's like, where's God? And this is why Psalm 3 and 4, I wanted to couple it with it. If you look at chapter 3, Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. They outnumber me. It, instead of us seeming to have the majority, it seems that we have the minority status. There's many that rise up against me. There are many who say to me, this is verse 2, there is no help for that person. God can't even help them. 
They don't even say, God, have mercy on you. They think you're a lost cause. You're canceled. You're invisible. You're erased. You need a zipper on your lip that is permanently closed. It's really interesting. This is why the raging and the plotting and all this stuff that goes on. But in chapter 3, you get this personal feeling. You get someone who's trusted in the Lord. And he says, I feel like I'm just a small little dot, a small little drop in the ocean. He says in verse 3, but I know Yahweh. I trust in him. And from Psalm 1, we know he delights in God's word day and night. Instead of being a tree that bends and breaks... He's like a tree that bears forth its fruit in its season. And even though it's difficult to live in a fallen world, he says, but you, O Lord, you're a shield for me, my glory, the one who can lift up my countenance, lift up my head. And so when you lift me up, you challenge me to cry out to you with my concerns. And that's why I always tell you, it is a beautiful thing to talk to God about your struggles. It may not be so beautiful to tell everybody else, but behold... He's the one that can lift you up from the place that you've been. And that's why he says, God will hear my voice. And he heard me from his holy hill. And this is another reference to the idea that Jesus is going to die on that cross. And even though David didn't know it all, he says, God is going to establish a throne. Because we know from Philippians 2 that Paul said, because of what Jesus did, he became king of kings and lord of lords. He was worthy because he was the one who conquered death. So verse 5 and 6 I can sleep, I can rest. I don't have to worry. Paul tells us, don't be anxious about things, but in everything by prayer and supplication, do what? Let your requests be made known unto God. If you understand what I'm saying is, all of this Pauline theology, it's rooted in David's teaching because it's the same word of God. That's why all scripture is given and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof and correction. And when we look at this, you can marvel at the people you are my shield, you lift up my head, you hear my prayers, you give me peace. When I awaken each morning, your mercies are renewed like Lamentation says. I am sustained, and now I'm not worried even if there's a thousand people out there. Oh, well, God's on my side. I'm on his. You got this, God. That's why Psalm 46 says it so well. We started in our Be Still Sunday where he says, you are my refuge and strength, a very present help in time of troubled. You answered me in my distress. If you look at chapter 4 very quickly, you can see it. Hear me when I call, O God. You have, re have relieved me when I was in distress. Let that mercy still be here. So listen to my voice while I'm in my troubles. Verse 2. How long? How long are they going to seem to get away with it? He says, they turn your glory into shame. How long, in verse 2, he goes on to say, will you love pe people, will you love worth, worth, uh, worthless stuff? Things that are here today and gone tomorrow. How long are you going to keep this up, this falsehood? And he says, Selah. Think about that for a moment. But know that the Lord has set apart for himself the godly. And the Lord will hear when the godly call to him. And that's why I can get angry, but I don't have to sin. I can meditate with my own heart, even while I'm in bed at peace, and I can still be right with God. I'm going to stop here for communion, because the application for us is that there is the godly and the ungodly. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul presents this meal to the people that were up there in Corinth. This was the city of Athens, or city in, in, in Greece, just below Athens. And uh, the people there, a lot of them were expert sinners. They even seemed to create new sins. Paul wrote a pretty lengthy epistle to try to deal with some of the things. Even the Christian community was thinking some of them were okay. And when it comes to communion, he says, whoa, whoa. This is not mealtime. This is not where you're eating lunch or dinner. This is a time where you're coming to commune with God. This is a time when you get to consider the Lord. This is very much like David saying, kiss the son. You're coming. There's that physical connection from the Old Testament. Now we have a physical representation of Christ. It is not Jesus. These things will not transform into the blood and body of Christ. These elements of bread and juice, they are bread and juice. But Jesus said, I'll be with you. And as you partake of this communion, as you come and dine, this is the call for God's people. As you're, as you're here in the end of 2021, as we're about the threshold of a new year, embrace the Son. Run to Him. Be like that prodigal boy. Don't dilly-dally. Oh, well, maybe I'll go home. No, I think he ran. And it's interesting that the prodigal father ran a little faster. His arms were open wide. Forgiveness, as we just sang. The lady who wiped the feet, she gave that, that perfume, that ointment that was expensive. And she said, Jesus, you're worth it. And they didn't realize that she was anointing him uh, even for the coming death. When you realize these things, wow, run to the sun. Kiss the son. Listen, as a believer, that second phrase there, lest he be angry, doesn't really apply anymore. Because once Jesus went to the cross, it was on, on, that, on that holy hill of Zion, when Jesus was hoisted up there, when he took his probable last breath, and he said to the Father, to tell us die, it's done. No more judgment ever need come on any of these who are in Christ. There is no more condemnation at all. You don't have to fear a thousand people or 10,000 people because if you have peace with God through the Son, you have peace. If the elders would come forward, let me lead us in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, I do pray that as we come to the Lord's table today that we would see this as an affirmation that sinners like us have now access to the throne of grace. Lord, we know that at the same moment Jesus cried out that it's been paid in full, that the Lamb's blood was put and applied to, to the hearts of saints. Lord, we know that the veil of the temple was rent. We know that access to the throne of grace, to that mercy seat, was given to each one of us. No longer do we need a priest. No longer do we need a mediator because Jesus is the mediator. And if we're in Christ, then we have peace that passes understanding. Jesus also taught it was like Noah and the ark. Noah was going to be subject to the wrath of God being poured out on the sins of this world. But God said there will be an ark prepared. And when Noah was on that ark, then the wrath that was poured out did not destroy him. In fact, there was beauty in the love that was being demonstrated that the wrath poured out on sin actually hit the ark 
but not the ones in the ark. And so, Lord, we thank you that the wrath of God does not hit us when we are in Christ. As we come to the Lord's table today, I pray that you will help us to search our hearts. Help us to see the value of delighting in your word as we've studied today. And help us to see the beauty of being the godly who trust you with all of our decisions because you are sovereign and we're not plotting. We're not listening to the secular counsel. We're listening to the Spirit's voice who is bearing witness with our spirit that we are forgiven. We are the children of God. And this communion table that's set before us is a reminder that you are ever-present, not only to surround us, but even to dwell in us as the union of the elements and our bodies are demonstrated in the sweet communion. May our union with Christ be demonstrated as well. In Jesus' name I pray. you could bring the lights up in the sanctuary on the night in which Jesus was betrayed he took bread and on that same night he took the cup he said this this is for you the disciples and it was a different if you could be seated for just a moment the disciples were there Luke chapter 22 you can read about it Jesus had prepared it differently they didn't bring an animal. They didn't bring bitter herbs. They didn't do the stuff that they normally would do, and they've been, they knew how to do it. Every single year, they did it right. Jesus looked at him and he said, this is different. This is my blood. This is my body. Within a number of hours, they would be leaving from that upper room down into Gethsemane, and the sweat drops of blood were going to be so real as he began to bear in his physical body the wrath of God that was due for our sin. And it was not a matter of, a, of another few hours that one of his own came with a kiss of betrayal. Is any man able perfectly to keep the commandments of God? No mere man since the fall is able to, in this life, perfectly keep them. But we daily break them in thought, in word, and in deed. Are all sins equally heinous? Some sins in themselves, are by reason of se or by several reasons of aggravations, are more heinous in God's sight than others. Some things are worse. Two murders are worse than one. But what does every sin deserve, regardless of how white or how dark, how big or how small? Every sin deserves God's wrath and curse, both in this life and in the life that continues. So what does God require of us that we might escape that wrath? To escape the wrath and curse of God due to us for our sin. God requires faith. In Jesus Christ. Run to Christ. Kiss the Son. And in so doing, repentance unto life. And the use of the, or the diligent use of all the outward means that Christ has already been communicating to us his redemption. The sacrament is before us as one of those benefits. You will not become saved by eating this bread or drinking this cup. You will not become more righteous by doing so. 
but your intimacy with Christ is deepened if you can discern the Lord's body. Do you see what he did for you? When you look at that wooden cross, that symbol of shame, he was despised and rejected, and he was forsaken even by the Father. Why? So that we might be able to come. Kiss the Son today. Lord Jesus, I pray that you will set apart these common elements of bread and juice for the sacred use that you have appointed in your word. We thank you that we do not have to see any more bloodshed as the Passover typically had. But because Jesus was going to offer his blood, it never, ever needed to be repeated again. No more blood ever need be shed because the wrath of God that demands death, because the wage of man's sin requires death, Jesus became man and died. And as we're still, help us to marvel that while we were yet dead in sins and trespasses, he did it for us. And because the good news of tidings of great joy have been made known to all kinds of people, we're thankful that they've been made known to us and that through the working of the Spirit in our hearts, we not only can see the truth, but we can embrace it freely. We thank you for this sweet communion. For as we partake of it today, we discern the Lord's body. We examine our own hearts and we realize that this is not just a snack. This is a full meal of grace, amazing grace, that you would take our place. And I thank you in Jesus' name, amen. At church, we usually do communion with the two steps. The one is to receive the bread and shows your individual relationship with Christ. It is the personal appeal, have you kissed the Son? And I encourage you that as we're finishing this year, to repent of those sins that you've hung on to. Let them go. Leave them at the foot of the cross as we are demonstrated during the prayer vigil. Let there not be any lengthy account that you're lingering with anyone. We have been forgiven much. As the bread comes around, please partake of it when you are ready to dine. And then we'll serve the cup after. This is the Lord's body broken for you.
for you. The body of Christ broken for you. After the same manner, up in the upper room, been there several times. I think it's the same place. Must have been so strange when Jesus talked about the one who would betray him, who would dip and partake. But when he said, this is the cup of the new covenant, he was drawing attention to that covenant that God had entered into with Adam and Eve, the covenant of works that if you would obey perfectly, you would have life. And if you would not obey perfectly, you would not have eternal life. And it was in this new covenant, Jesus was saying, I'm not invalidating the covenant of works, I'm going to complete it. And Jesus completed the covenant of works. He lived the perfect life. The only one who was worthy, 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 and that is why when he willingly chose to take our place, to become our substitute, there is no other gospel ever available to mankind, nor will God ever change the deal. He entered into covenant. This is the new covenant in my blood. It is poured out for many. If you're one of the recipients today, then you are a part of what's called the ecclesia, the church of Jesus Christ. What a beautiful privilege. What an affirmation, because we're set apart by being the godly instead of the ungodly. Even though we still sin, we delight in God's law. We delight in the scriptures, and we trust the Lord in our decisions. As the cup is passed to you, there is an encouragement for all of the saints to hold it, and as we participate together, demonstrating we are one body in Christ. The scripture tells us, serve the Lord with, uh, with, he says, with fear and 
rejoice with trembling. That's a little hard to understand. How do you rejoice and tremble at the same time? I think the translation in the King James is not quite as helpful for us, but it says that we can rejoice because he's great and he gives us reason to rejoice, even though he is an awesome God. He is speaking there to the secular world, and that makes sense. You need to be afraid that when you come in to kiss the sun, you are not worthy. You are not worthy. You're only welcome because I am worthy. The application of that text, rejoice. Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. Jesus took the cup of God's wrath so that we could have the cup of communion. Rejoice, let us drink. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you for the sweetness of this communion. I do pray that you will strengthen our faith. And I do pray that you will draw those who do not yet know Jesus, who are still in that ungodly camp, and I pray that you will forgive their sins. Even though their lives may still be a mess, we thank you that through forgiveness, all things have become new. To be in Christ, the old is passed away and the wrath of God is no longer to be poured out on us. And that is why there's no more condemnation for them that are in Christ. Lord, we thank you for the atoning work of Jesus at Calvary's cross. We discern what he did physically there today. And we rejoice with trembling because we know that we didn't deserve it. We thank you for this in Jesus' name.